In August 1971, Stanford psychologist Philip Zimbardo and his colleagues set out to study how rules impact behavior in the prison environment. They recruited volunteers through a newspaper ad where they offered $15 a day to participants who were willing to participate in an immersive prison environment. Numerous young men responded to the ad, but in the end, a much smaller sample was chosen, as this group was thought to be the most mature and psychologically stable. They were randomly assigned to the role of either inmate or guard. In the end, 10 participants were inmates, 11 were guards. Zimbardo served as the warden, however, he was also the principal researcher. He provided direction to the guards, informing them that while they could not engage in physical violence towards the inmates, they could engage in other behaviors designed to induce anxiety, remove their identity, and increase compliance. The experiment began with the inmates being arrested at unexpected times. They were handcuffed, blindfolded, and transported to the psychology building at Stanford University, which had been transformed into a simulated prison. Inmates were stripped naked and deloused. Their personal property was taken, and they were issued a uniform which consisted of only a smock and a hair cap. No undergarments were provided. Guards referred to inmates only by their identification numbers, and they were only allowed to refer to each other by their number as well. The guards also wore identical uniforms, which included dark sunglasses and billy clubs. On the first day of the experiment, the guards began subjecting the inmates to early morning counts, waking them up in the middle of the night. They also ordered inmates to engage in menial and boring tasks, insulted them, and subjected them to physical punishment consisting of push-ups when they broke the rules. The second day of the experiment, the inmates staged a rebellion, but it was short-lived. The guards quickly regained control and punished the ringleaders by placing them in a dark closet, which they called solitary confinement. Those inmates who were least involved in the uprising got special privileges, including special meals, which they ate while the other inmates were denied food. Less than three days into the experiment, one of the inmates began crying uncontrollably and appeared to be suffering an emotional breakdown. The psychologist running the study decided to release him. Another inmate broke down during a meeting with a Catholic priest who had served as a prison chaplain. The experimenters provided a break to the participant where his leg restraint was removed and he was allowed to go into a different part of the building. However, during this time, the guards had the other inmates begin to chant derogatory statements about this inmate, which he was able to hear. This caused him to become more distressed, and when asked by the researchers if he wanted to leave the experiment, he said he would not because the other inmates saw him as a bad inmate. The aggressive and demeaning behavior of the guards escalated while the inmates became more submissive. Zimbardo and his colleagues noticed that all of the participants appeared to have identified with their roles as they spoke about the prison even during phone calls to their families and while the guards were on break from their duties. Although the experiment was set to last two weeks, it was ended after six days when Zimbardo's girlfriend, who later became his wife, observed what was going on. She also had a PhD in psychology and told Zimbardo she felt the inmates were being abused by the guards. Zimbardo stated she was the only one of over 50 observers to object to the morality of the study. He later published the results of the study, which he believed provided evidence that the prison environment produced aggressive and tyrannical behavior in individuals who would otherwise not behave in this manner. 
This study has been the subject of books, television shows, and movies. The results have been cited in congressional testimony, and it is a paramount study cited in almost every introductory psychology textbook. This episode is about the Stanford Prison Experiment. Welcome to Psychology After Dark, the podcast where we explore the dark side of the human condition. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McCono. And Dr. David Morelos. So David, this is our first episode that we're recording in our new digs. Yes, it's been a crazy few weeks. I'm yeah, sorry. you guys probably, most of you don't know, but David and I uh, just moved into a new house last week. And so things have been crazy. Yeah, we decided to move across town so we could be closer to work. As many of you know, we both work at a federal prison, which coincidentally is what this episode is about, life in prisons. Yeah, so you know, now with our move, David and I are going to have even more time to devote to our podcast. So we're really excited about that. And as David said, we're really excited to talk about our episode this week. So, you know, David, I remember learning about the Stanford Prison Experiment in so many of my psychology classes. Oh, of course. Yeah, I mean, I think I learned about it the first time probably in high school, but we discussed it all the way up through all of my graduate studies as well. Well, it's been the subject of a lot of uh, documentary TV shows, other studies, I would say. That there was have... even a movie. Do you remember that movie? I think it was called The Stanford Prison Experiment, and it, it wasn't a documentary. It was like a, a drama but I remember watching that and it was just, I mean, it's so compelling. Yeah, that, that was actually pretty recent, that movie. Right, yeah. It's like one of those studies that people can't stop talking about. Sure. And, you know, the very fact that they had to end the experiment after only six days was so shocking to me as a student. You know, I used to think about all the implications of it and it really colored my view of prison before I had ever even stepped foot in one. Right. You know, but as I got older and I had more life experience, I became more critical of the study. You know, I've worked in criminal justice in one capacity or another for the past 20 years. How long How long have you worked in criminal justice? Well, criminal justice itself, I would say, at, at this particular prison, it's been 16 years. But you've also worked in youth corrections. Youth corrections, right? group homes, things like that. Yeah, likewise. And I've done a lot of work and research and evaluations in county jails as well. So, you know, all of those years, and I have never seen anything like the Stanford Prison Experiment actually play out. No, the Stanford Prison Experiment is one of those things. It's like dealing with Marxism in political science. It, it's become this sort of monument that you have to deal with when we talk about prisons and corrections here, especially in America, where we incarcerate more people per capita than any 
other country in the entire world. People have this idea that this is what prison is like, or this is what prison can be like. And it's important for us to look at it, I think, because, again, being the world's leader, for better or for worse, in the amount of people that we incarcerate, is this the way it is? Is Does prison life sort of bring about these types of behaviors? Well, and I think that's what Zimbardo was really trying to look at, right? He believed that it was the prison environment that caused people to act this way. It really wasn't about their personal characteristics. And, you know, it was his belief that anyone, any good person put into the role of prison, quote unquote, guard would behave in this manner. Right. I think it was sort of this idea that if I had to take a guess and if I could ask, this is a question I would love to ask Zimbardo. Did the Vietnam War really have anything to do with this idea? You know, this this premise that he had, that is, there is this environment, this crucible that when you put people into it, it's going to make them exhibit these kinds of behaviors. Because I really think that that was sort of the concept behind how they explained behaviors that were coming out from soldiers in the Vietnam War. Well, and there had even been studies before that looking at um, Nazi Germany and the Nazis and how they treated people. And a very famous experiment, which we're definitely going to talk about in a future episode, was the Milgram experiment. And really looking at, you know, how do people engage in such harmful behaviors, even if it's outside of what how they would normally act? When they believe that they are under the control of somebody in authority. Right. It's called diffusion of responsibility. And and like I said, we're going to get back to that. You know, but in this particular study, you know, it just really does not sit well with me having all of these years of experience working in prison. And, you know, I'm not saying that there aren't bad officers. And I, I want to pause here and just kind of have you talk about the difference between a prison guard and a prison officer, because I know that that's a very sensitive area for people who work in prison. So can you kind of explain that? Right. So let's go back for a second here. Uh, In my own personal experience, you and I did uh, quite a bit of research on this topic, but we both came to the conclusion that, you know, maybe this is something that you and I are so close to because of what we do for a living and for what, because we've done that for so long that we really need to talk about this in a more embodied way, sort of from the heart, right? I guess you could say. Yes. Back in when I first got into corrections, I was um, newly married. Uh, we wanted to buy a house and I needed a job that was going to pay for that, essentially. So I was a youth counselor at the time, and this is one of those unfortunate uh, realities is that society does not reward us intervening in the lives of kids or teenagers. Right, right. It will reward you significantly more if you intervene in the lives of adults for whatever reason. So preventing these kids from becoming inmates later on, you know, criminals later on in life doesn't pay anything, but... Dealing with them inside of a prison pays significantly more. That's a very strange sort of um, relationship or a very strange sort of concept to me. So when I was a youth counselor working with teenagers, I had decided, okay, well, I need to find a job that's going to give me better benefits, better pay. And so I started looking around. Well, the natural extension seemed to be getting into corrections in some way, shape or form. So I looked around. I uh, looked at the state system and then I stumbled upon the federal system. 
And the federal system had really great benefits, very good pay, pay that you could actually make a living with. And so I went that direction and I wound up becoming an officer. Now, bear in mind, I had a lot of the same preconceptions about prison life that a lot of people did. I'd watched, you know, a lot of specials on Discovery and just having been exposed to pop culture references to prison life, movies and such. So I walked in sort of with this idea. Okay, and this was only supposed to be a temporary job for me. At the time, I was also pursuing my master's degree and trying to finish that up and stuff. And I figured, okay, maybe, you know, a few years tops. I'll spend, you know, as an officer here or whatever, just to pay bills, buy the house, things like that, until I move on to something bigger and better. Because I never saw myself as a corrections officer. And I don't think anybody who really knew me at the time saw me that way either. I got into, that's how I got into this, this job. And it sort of just reiterates how even people who do get into correction, a lot of times walk in with that same sort of perception that this is what it is going to be like. First off, the old perception was of corrections officers in law enforcement is that we are the people who were not good enough to be real cops. And I think that that may still persist. I think to a certain extent it does. I think corrections is still kind of the redheaded stepchild of law enforcement. Of course, not the people who work in corrections. We do not view it that way. We view it as being a very legitimate and important law enforcement position. But I do still hear other police officers who really kind of look down on what corrections officers do. Of course, of course. So, and and forgive the politically incorrect reference, but that's sort of the, the go-to joke, the running joke we have about the Bureau of Prisons within the Department of Justice. We're sort of looked down upon mm-hmm. as the ones who weren't good enough to be, you know, ATF or DEA or FBI or any of these other law enforcement agencies that people really uh, hold in high esteem for the most part. That we're just sort of the ones, I mean, we have the shortest academy Mm -hmm. and we usually have amongst our staff the most lax requirements in terms of how we hire. Right, like physical requirements. Physical requirements, educational requirements and so on. So, but if we look back at the Stanford prison experiment, going back into the 70s, the idea of the prison guard, this is a, a term that has since become derogatory to correctional professionals, correctional workers. There's a reason for that. It's because back then, it was almost like if you could have somebody, you could just pull somebody randomly off the street and say, hey, you, watch that person and make sure they don't leave. Here's a gun, here's a badge, you know, and you can do whatever basically you want to them in order to keep them from leaving this area or whatever, the prison. What's interesting is that, and this is one of the things that people do not realize about corrections, is that it has become so much more of a true vocation. There have been so many things that we have been forced to deal with in the course of running a real prison. And you and I are fully aware of that. I work in basically the rehabilitation of inmates, which is his own vocation. You work in diagnosis right, and advising the courts about how to proceed in trials. Right, in criminal matters, right. Criminal matters. These are all part of corrections that people don't realize because when you think about corrections, you think about just a bunch of guards, quote unquote, standing around watching and making sure that a bunch of prisoners or inmates don't leave. 
Right. And I would say those who work as correctional officers, they do so much more than just guard inmates. I feel like even, you know, people that don't work in psychology, we are all there working towards the same goal. Right? Absolutely. The rehabilitation of inmates, preparing them to reenter society, treating them humanely and giving them the opportunity to correct their behavior. I mean, that that is where the term corrections came from. Exactly. Exactly. So there is a real meaning behind this term. There's a real meaning behind this term. There are four basic components to the criminal justice system. You have prevention, you have police, you have the courts, and then you have corrections. Right. It does not work without the correctional part. It simply does not work, which makes us a very important part of the overall system. And you think about the fact that the vast majority of inmates who are incarcerated in our prisons in this country are going to be released. And so you think about, you know, how we treat them while they're in our care has a huge impact because these people will be re-entering society. And Absolutely. I, th- I think the people that work in corrections, by and large, this has been my experience, they do appreciate that. They understand that. You know, I, I, again, I'm not saying that there aren't bad officers. There are, there are good and bad in every profession. And are there officers that are sadistic and that would or do abuse inmates? Certainly. But I do not believe that they're the majority. And certainly I've not witnessed this type of behavior from officers during my career. And I can't imagine, they wouldn't last. I mean, they would either be fired or, you know, the inmates outnumber us by a long shot. You know, in the Stanford prison experiment, there were more guards than there were inmates. That's what made this whole thing. I mean, that's one thing when we really look at the Stanford prison experiment. That's just one aspect of it that sort of made it ridiculous. Anybody who's worked in a prison knows that you are vastly outnumbered when it comes to the ratio between inmates and staff. That is just one of the major things. So you were talking about what we appreciate as being correctional professionals, correctional workers. And one of the things that you have to do is you have to form relationships with the people that you are in charge of because they do outnumber you. That and you're with them all day, every day. And if you are just fighting with people and having you know, this very adversarial relationship with them, I can't imagine how awful that would be. Oh, it would make you it would make every day an incredibly long one because you would be fighting every single day. You know, and and furthermore, when people release, I mean, who do you want to be your next door neighbor? Somebody that you treated basically like an animal while they were in your care or somebody that you tried to help and that is entering society in a better manner than when they came in. And I know that there's a lot of criticism of the way that we incarcerate people in this country, the way that we treat them while they're incarcerated. But again, I think that that the mission, certainly of our prison, is that we are there to prepare them for reentry. We are there to help in their rehabilitation. And so, and I do think that that is an overarching goal of our system in this country. And again, I'm not saying that there aren't bad people that don't fulfill that but i think that they that the vast majority really do help you know help to rehabilitate inmates yeah i, I think that rehabilitation and re-entry is is the official term for it that the bureau of prisons uses currently 
is a multi-layered initiative. Because again, just like you were saying, this is something that's going to happen. The vast majority of people who are in prison right now will get out and they will be in society. They'll be our neighbors. They'll be our co-workers. And so we have to begin to understand like, okay, when they come to prison, how are they going to use this time in order to better themselves? And how can we as correctional professionals help in that process? So we've seen a lot more resources, government resources being devoted to things like education. That's always been a big thing in the Bureau of Prisons, Mm -hmm. but also to psychological health in terms of stuff like what I do, substance abuse treatment. Just mental health services in general, also vocational training. We have a lot of programs aimed towards that. That's been a tougher one. I'll I'll admit, I think that for any correctional system that we've, you know, that we've looked at state or federal or county, vocational training has been probably one of the biggest challenges. And really, how much can we train them? And what kind of skills can we give them inside of prison? I think that's been harder. But I think that definitely education, psychological services, things like that have been a very big Initiative. We actually have one position that is devoted to re-entry now. We have a re-entry coordinator is what his title is. And his job is really to locate resources in the community that our guys can use, our prisoners can use when they get out to get back on their feet. You know, so we're, we're talking about all of the good things that happen in prison. And so I, I kind of want to circle back around and and try to figure out, so what then happened in Zimbardo's study. How did it go so incredibly wrong? It's interesting because I think in this country, we put a lot of stock in research. Wouldn't you agree, David? I think so. You know, and and that makes sense. You know, if it's been approved by a research committee and it's been published in a peer-reviewed journal, it must be true, right? Well, it seems very official, doesn't it? Right, it does. But then when we have experiences like this where we see the research and we find that it doesn't match what happens in the real world, we have to start to kind of question that. So in the past several years, the Stanford Prison Experiment has come under a lot of scrutiny. And I want to point out that this study has always been controversial. It's one of the studies that's highlighted when discussing ethics in research. And some argue that it is because of some of the unethical practices in this study and some others that we will talk about, that we now have institutional review boards, or IRBs, who review research studies to ensure the protection of human participants before experiments can be conducted. So some of the ethical problems with this study were that participants were not told they could leave the experiment at any time. They were not informed that they would be arrested, and some argue that the inmates were subjected to mental abuse, which was potentially harmful. Now, that being said, people would argue that, well, that's the same for people like actual inmates in prison, right? They can't leave whenever they want to. They often don't know when they are going to be arrested. And some would say that the conditions of prison can be potentially harmful to inmates. But there were some other things with the Stanford Prison Experiment as well. There has been information that has surfaced from some of the videos taken during the actual experiment and from interviews with the participants that much of the behavior of the guards was actually coached by the experimenters. So this means that their behavior, which coincidentally confirmed Zimbardo's hypothesis, was likely the product of Zimbardo and his colleagues encouraging the guards to act in this manner. 
So David, could you imagine if when we went through our training to work in prison, if they told us, yeah, you can basically do whatever you want and yeah, really break those inmates down and really treat them horribly. You can't hit them, but you can do pretty much anything else to to dehumanize them. It's the most ridiculous thing I think I've ever seen. Yeah, I mean, that, that of <laughs> course, does not happen in actual prisons. No, so, as a matter of fact, one of the things that you are trained on, I think, and one of the things that they emphasize is the rights of prisoners. Yes. I can tell you that, and just to, just to give you another example of the rights of prisoners and how far the pendulum has swung the other direction in terms of that, when I was trying to get research approved for my dissertation, I had a hell of a time mm-hmm. going through the process, trying to, it was a multi-layered process. I first had to start locally, then I had to go to region, then it had to go up to central office. It had to go through all these layers, these bureaucratic layers, first off, just to get to the very top and be rejected. Right, because they are so concerned with protecting inmates because right. they are a vulnerable population. Vulnerable and a very protected population they are wards of the state right so that means that they actually have a whole lot of rights and so you know to think that a prison organization would tell their officers like go and treat them horrible and be as over the top as you want to be is completely unrealistic and and just just to clarify too when it came to to my research it was nothing anything like what Zimbardo did or anything like that. All I wanted to do was to ask them some questions. Right. And I I think that's important to point out that you weren't even trying to manipulate anything. No, there was no experiment. It was just a a series of questions to try to get uh, some qualitative information from their experience in prison. That was all it was. Yeah. But I mean, I think that that just highlights how protected they are. So, one of uh, one of the other things that came out, you know, some of the participants have been interviewed since the study was completed. And one of the harshest guards came out as saying that he looked at it as playing a role, that he was basically acting and that he really wanted something extreme to happen. And he actually modeled his performance after Cool Hand Luke. So I don't remember the name of the character, but you probably know better than me. Right, because I, I, do, I do love that movie. I think that was a good movie. But that, again, is a, another example of this sort of very old school idea of what correctional officers are or were. Um, I don't believe, I don't, maybe somebody can correct me on this one, but I don't believe that that particular character had a name. I think they referred to him as the man with no eyes because he wore mirrored sunglasses. Which is what the officers in the Stanford prison experiment did. Right. And they what wore also. Dark glasses so that they couldn't have eye contact with the inmates. Right. What also made him intimidating is that he doesn't speak throughout the entire movie. Wow. Not a single word. That's interesting. So, I mean, that just goes to show that one of the the guys who was really one of the most authoritarian really viewed it as just acting. And if you remember from the beginning, I said that there was an inmate who had to be released from the study because he had this like mental breakdown. And he came forward and said that he was also just acting because he needed to study for a very important exam. And when he asked the guards for his books, they wouldn't allow him to have them. And so he was like, well, I have to do something to get out of this because I have to study for this exam. And so he's come forward as saying, you know, I didn't actually have a mental breakdown. I just needed to get out of the study. And there wasn't an easy way for them to do that. So, you know, and I, I get it. They had put a lot of effort 
and resources into this study, and Zimbardo felt that there were some real problems with the prison environment. And he wasn't wrong, right? I mean, corrections has come a long way since the 1970s, and it may even be possible that some of those changes were a result of this experiment. So, you know, I get why he wanted to push this agenda. However, that really has no place in empirical research. I mean, if you're saying that a study is empirical, then it shouldn't be about pushing a particular agenda. It's misleading, and it can sway us away from understanding the actual dynamics and psychology that's occurring. And, you know, overall, it can be harmful, not only to the participants, as it was potentially harmful to the participants in this study, but also to others, depending on how this false information is used going forward. You know, in Zimbardo's defense, he has acknowledged some of the problems with this study, but really it's still frequently cited as fact. Yeah, I think that there is some sort of draw to the dramatic. And I think that that's what is most irritating for me personally about this and about the way people see the correctional system is that there's, because we are an isolated community, because prisons are meant by design meant to be that way, it's very difficult for people to see inside and to have real transparency into how things go in the day to day. Well, and we always talk about like some of the popular shows about prison really irritate us. So like <laughs> the one right now is Orange is the New Black. And I know people love it. I get it. We watched the first season. No, we watched the first two seasons. Oh, that's right. The first two seasons. And we had to stop watching it because we were so irritated with the way that they were portraying the staff. I, and, that, and I think that's the thing. And nobody really bats an eye about that. Nobody really bats an eye when they portray correctional workers as either weak and easily compromised or as dirty. Or as being completely sadistic. Right. I mean, and those were kind of the three roles in that show. And we finally were like, you know what? I can't, I can't watch this. It's just, again, portraying that stereotype. And I think it, it undermines what really happens in prison. No. And I get, I mean, I know it's just entertainment. I'm not saying people shouldn't watch the show or, or anything like that. You know, it was entertaining. But for us, it was, it's just a pet peeve. Yeah. So I just want to point out one other issue with the Stanford prison experiment and one other problem is that when people are doing research, empirical research, its ability to be replicated is very important. You know, that, that means that people can run the same study in the future and they're going to get the same results. And that, that uh, lends credibility to the findings. And so any good research study should be able to be replicated. And, you know, one of the major problems with Zimbardo's study, like I said, there are, were so many ethical problems that given the institutional review boards and the ethics guidelines that we have now, nobody would ever be able to run this study again. And so it's never been replicated. So we, you know, we've never been able to see, like, would the same results occur again? Now, there have been some studies where they've attempted to replicate certain parts of it or certain dynamics. And overall, what they found is that it's it's not been consistent with Zimbardo's findings. So his belief, you know, as we said earlier, was that it's people's behavior is a product of their role and environment. And what we find is that people don't just blindly go along with things. Uh, he, he failed to take into account individual characteristics, our own interpretations of how the roles should be fulfilled, our own moral code. And, you know, those things really do weigh in. 
And the way that that roles are described to us, you know, that plays a, a, a piece as well. And in his study, I would argue that that was a very important piece because he told them, this is my expectation of you. Now, maybe he didn't say that explicitly to the guards, but it was certainly implied. And there were certain behaviors that were encouraged. But again, I think those people, those young men walked into that situation with this perception of this is how this is supposed to go because this is what prison guards, quote unquote, this is how they act. And it it almost makes me think of like, you know, we have all these reality television shows now. And of course, they didn't have them in the, in the early 70s. But if you watch any of these like reality shows, people, they don't pick like normal, boring people to do things, right? right. To be on the shows because nobody right. would watch them. Exactly. So they look for people who are going to push the envelope and who are going to be kind of over the top and create some drama. And I kind of get that sense from this study as well. You know, that guard that modeled his behavior after cool, cool Hand Luke, that's what he was saying. He, he wanted to shake it up. He wanted to keep it interesting. And in fact, Zimbardo said, you know, when the experiment was going on, a day in, really nothing had happened. And they thought about ending the experiment because they didn't think that they were going to get any interesting results. And so you kind of have to wonder about how did that impact how he approached the guards. And again, was that part of him kind of encouraging them to push the envelope so that they would get something? And something dramatic. Something dramatic. And that's not research, right? No. That's not research. No, it's it's entertainment is right. what it is. Yeah, I, I <laughs> there are all kinds of issues. I mean, when you go through the actual order of events in this experiment... There are all kinds of things that we could we could pick apart. Again, I, there is this idea that the guys who walked into it, particularly the ones who walked in to be the guards, had an idea of this is what we're supposed to do. This is what prison guards, quote unquote, again, because you and I don't really use that term, but this is no. what correctional officers are supposed to do. And that's not at all what they're supposed to do. I actually think, and we'll probably get to this particular topic on another episode and we'll talk more about it but in situations like Abu Gray oh I absolutely want to talk about that right yeah. uh, I do believe that this there is elements of this idea which is oh well we have this idea of the way we're supposed to act as officers and so you know based on popular culture so that's what we're going to do and there are also other issues involved in that, including that the prisoners didn't have, they don't have the same rights that the prisoners here would. Well, and I citizens, think there was right? also a lot of that diffusion of responsibility going on, that they were being instructed to, to treat the inmates in particular ways. And, you know, we're going to do a whole episode on that. I've already started to do some research because I find that particular um, instance to be very um, interesting and confusing because, you know, here we are saying that the Stanford prison experiment is inaccurate. And then we do have one real life example where such things were occurring. And so I think we need to kind of look at that and, and, and make some sense of that. But again, I think it's an acknowledgement that we are human, right? And that there, there are dark aspects to us that we definitely need to keep in check. Another example of this would have been I want to say in the early 2000s, I should have pulled up some research on this so I could tell the story a little bit better. This was a big topic of conversation when I first joined the Bureau of Prisons back in the early 2000s, and that was the issue of the cowboys. Do you remember that story? 
Um, I've heard people reference it, yeah. Yeah, it's in the news and it can be Googled, but it basically it was a group of officers that were wound up being brought up on charges for inhumane treatment of prisoners, I believe, at the United States Penitentiary in Florence or, or the ADX. Now I can't remember which one it was. But it was inside of the special housing unit, which is also known in jargon as solitary confinement, which is another term that we don't use anymore. No, because it's not actually solitary, but we can get to that during another episode. Right. So again, in the special housing unit, there were some inmates who were being very mistreated, let's say, Mm -hmm. you know, very, very mistreated. And so some officers, they were able to pinpoint a core group of officers who were the ringleaders in this mistreatment. And so they were wound up, it was a big deal. They got brought up on charges. They were all sent to prison themselves, I do believe. I don't think any of them uh, were able to escape that. I think there was three or four. Well, and again, I think that that just shows that we do not have a tolerance for um, correctional professionals treating inmates like that. And when it is found out that people will be held accountable for that. And, And at least that's my hope is that, you know, when these things do occur and I do believe that they're isolated incidences, but that these people are held accountable because that's criminal behavior in and of itself. Right. And again, this is to say that this is always going to probably be a problem in the sense that we are always going to have problems with cops who are not the greatest, right? Who are, We're going to have trouble with that, I think. And I think that the more we emphasize that type of accountability, the better we'll get and the more seriously will be taken in this profession. Yeah, I, I think that that's a good point. And, and I think that that's something that's been in the news a lot lately as well, is, is kind of looking at miscarriage of justice. And, and certainly I think it's a risk anytime people are in a position of power, that that position may attract people who are going to misuse that power. Um, and I do think that it's important to hold people accountable for that. Yeah, I think that it's really interesting too. you know, there has been a significant change in my perception. I've grown a lot and learned a lot. I remember when, like I said, when I first started in corrections, I never thought that I would have stuck around for as long as I have. But when I really started to get into it, when I really started to engage it, I've read a lot of literature that has come out of prison. Um, There's a book called 20,000 Years in Sing Sing which was a really interesting book. Um, a book I really like was a book called New Jack, which is a, a, an account of a journalist who took a job as a corrections officer in Sing Sing Prison again. Um, there's a number of just really good accounts, and I would say sort of firsthand, very knowledgeable accounts of what being a corrections officer and working in this environment is really like. There's a lot of... Uh, There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of um, having to wrestle darkness. But at the same time, there's a lot of funny things that happen too, right? And most days in prison, I have to say, are good days. Most days, yeah. And I feel like a lot of days, you know, we have really positive interactions with the inmates. We have positive relationships with them. They have positive relationships with each other. Um, And it's not at all what the media portrays. Yeah, and I think that that's that's a very important point is to, if this is something you want to know about, you really have to kind of go to the source because 
and I don't want to go off on a tangent here again. I'll take everybody down the rabbit hole about the history of corrections, you know, historically where the model came from and how it's evolved over the years, because it is meant to be a cloistered community. In other words, it was based on the monastic principle, right? It was founded by the Quakers, developed by the Quakers, Eastern State Penitentiary, where people could go, get away, and have time to really contemplate their lives, to, have, to be able to contemplate their crimes. And that was sort of the idea. And because of that idea of it being cloistered away from the rest of society, it now has taken on this sort of mysterious and dark sort of overtone which I don't think is really warranted. I think that, you know, if people really want to know what happens in prisons, I think that most prisons, a lot of prisons, will be very transparent about it. Like, yeah, this is what we do. Right. You know, yeah, there's some violent stuff that goes down here, but you know what? We also, but what most people don't see is that we also are helping them every single day. Well, and I think like even with the Bureau of Prisons, all of our program statements, which are basically like our rules and regulations, our policies for running the prison, are available to the public. And so if people are interested in finding out about how certain things work, they can actually look that up on their own. And it's not held secret. It's, it's something that's very transparent. And I think that that even gives some good insight into what actually occurs inside of prison. So it's probably time to wrap this up because you and I could probably talk about prison all day. Yeah, and we will definitely (laughs) come back to this topic. Yeah, I definitely want to do an episode on Abu Gray in the future. And, you know, we've also had some suggestions from our listeners for other topics for other episodes. So we really appreciate that. Um, So please keep them coming. You can submit an episode idea on our website at psychologyafterdark.com. We also have some additional information on the Stanford Prison Experiment on our discussion page. And you can find us on social media at Psychology After Dark on Facebook. And again, thank you everyone for listening and for all of your support. As always, if you're enjoying us, please give us a five-star rating and don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. So we'll be back in a couple of weeks with a brand new episode. Thanks for joining. Thanks for listening. The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. This episode was written, hosted, and produced by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McCono. It was edited by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and The Arrival by Liskis, both provided by Gemendo. <laughs>